going to Romans chapter 12. We are in week four of a five-week series in which we're looking at the values that shape us as a church, that make us who we are. And uh, this morning we're going to be digging into this concept of grace. And we're going to begin by looking at Romans 12, looking at verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. Several years ago, uh, after I finished preaching on a Sunday morning, um, I had a woman approach me. She had been part of Trailhead at that point for, um, uh, I guess, about a year. And, um, and she came up and, and we had a good conversation. And, and she said, you know, Steve, I just have to ask you, um, when are you going to preach something other than the gospel? Which, you know, I kind of saw where this conversation was going. I, I kind of got where she was leading, but I kind of also had to ask to let her unfold it. So I'm like, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, like commands and, and obedience and, and stuff like that. When are you going to start preaching about the commands of Scripture? And when are you going to start really pushing your people into obedience? And I was very polite, and we finished our conversation, but in the back of my head, I thought, I don't think you're probably going to like it here. Um, and, and I'll explain why. It wasn't because of, of anything rude or anything else, but, but here's the thing. She and I both agreed that people need to change. We all agree that. There's a sense in which when you become a follower of Jesus, it changes your life, and that change should have its proper outworking in your life, but I could tell we had a fundamental disagreement on how that change should take place. Here's the thing. Much religious effort is based on the idea that change is the result of of self-effort in here combined with rules and restrictions out here. That you grow in the Christian life by learning and understanding the rules better, and growing in your ability to be strong enough, self-controlled enough, put out enough effort to, to bring yourself in line with those expectations. That it is an external rule combined with an internal will that leads to your growth in your Christian life. Here's the thing, I just don't see it like that. I don't see it like that. I don't think the Bible teaches it like that. I am convinced that the Bible teaches us a very different approach to change in the Christian life. Here's the thing. I believe in change. I think change is absolutely necessary. We all need to be growing uh, and changing as we follow Jesus. But I believe that all true change results from a deep experience of grace. All true change, all moral improvement results not from an effort from the will, but a deep experience of grace. So we're going to look at Romans 12 to kind of unpack this a little bit. And uh, I love the book of Romans. The book of Romans is 16 chapters. Someday I'm going to be brave enough to preach through it. 
Um, it is a fairly lengthy book. It is one of my favorite books in the Bible. Um, it is so methodical, so organized, and it is a clear and powerful unpacking of the gospel. But here's the challenge with it. Uh, every word could become a sermon. And you're like, Steve, that's true pretty much every time you preach. I know, um, but, but really, every word could potentially become a sermon. And we're going to spend most of our time focusing on one word in this passage, and it's probably not one you expect. In verse 1, it says, I appeal, appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So I was taught early when I started studying the scriptures, every time you come across the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. For real. So that's, that's what we're going to do. That we're focusing on therefore. That's the word we're focusing on. Um, because a therefore isn't just a filler. What he's saying is I've unpacked some really important ideas previously that now lead to these ideas. And so you need to understand these ideas before you really understand the application. And so before we can understand Romans 12, 1 and 2, we need to kind of understand a little bit about what Paul is referencing previously. What has he already explained that we need to know? Well, here's the thing. I believe that this therefore actually refers to ideas he unpacked in Romans 1 through 8, and specifically some key ideas in Romans 6. And so I'm just, we're going to go back and I'm going to unpack some of these things. Okay, and kind of give you an overview. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach all of Romans, but I, I do want to give you an overview of this, of this beginning part of, of the letter. I'm going to warn you up front, um, this, this sermon is a little more teachy than preachy, and so you're going to have to kind of bear with me, put on your scholar hat, um, and, and hopefully we will learn together. All right, so in Romans, chapters 1 through 3, just to summarize, Romans 1 through 3, essentially what Paul is, is, is saying is, is everyone, everyone is helpless to fix themselves. So essentially what he's saying is all y'all, all y'all need Jesus. All y'all, right? You ir- irreligious people that are trying to fix yourself through, through your immoral behavior or, or chasing down pleasure or, or trying to get enough success, it's not going to work. You can't fix yourself. You're going to fall short. And, and all y'all that are, that, are, that are religious and trying to fix yourself through moral improvement and uh, attending church every time the doors are open and, 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 and trying to make yourself better, y'all are going to fall short too. All y'all need Jesus, right? That's, that's Romans 1 through 3, right? So it's summarized in, in this simple verse, Romans 3.23. For all, all of y'all, all, all y'all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now I'm going to go a little English teacher on you. There's two verbs here with two different tenses. All have sinned. That's uh, a present perfect. Um, you're like, great. Okay, so what that means is that it's an action that occurred in the past that has present consequences, right? So all y'all sinned, just reality. <laughs> you, have, you have sinned against people. You have sinned against yourself. You've sinned against God, all y'all. That's the way it works, right? We've all, we've all sinned. We've all done what we shouldn't have done. We've all said what we shouldn't have said. We, we all made choices that we regretted making later. We've all hurt people. We've all let ourselves down. We've all turned to things other than God to do for us what only God can do, to be for us what only God can be. All y'all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The tense of fall is present tense. We all fall short of the glory of God. That tells us two things. One, the standard by which God measures us is His own glory. And two, we all fall short. So, So we have a measuring stick we like to use most of the time. 
It's a measuring stick we're more comfortable with, right? We try to compare ourselves with people around us, and, 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 and that stick's usually pretty low, right? Like, what's the measuring stick for acceptable behavior, say, in your cul-de-sac, in your neighborhood, right? You pretty much want everyone just to behave decently. I mean, that's it, right? If we can just get everyone behaving decently, we're all right. You, know, you do the indecent stuff behind closed doors, right? But, but in public, let's keep it all decent. Well, for God, there, there is no public and private. With God, the standard is His own manifestation of glory. We were created for perfection. We were created to live as a manifestation of His glory. We were created to be vessels of His glory. We were created in His image to show His image to all of creation, which means that we were created for perfection. We all fall short of the glory of God. Right? It's as if um, we were all trying to, in a sense, jump a gap that's unjumpable, right? Like, like if you were in California, which is a beautiful, beautiful place, uh, and, and you were trying to jump the Pacific Ocean. Some of you can jump a lot farther than others, right? Some of you can't jump very far. You just get smushed on the rocks. Some of you can jump a little bit further, and you actually make it into the water. Good job. But you can't jump over the ocean. We all fall short. So, so it doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how polished you are. It doesn't matter how good your public image is. We have all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. So you're getting, that's the point of Romans 1 through 3. All y'all need Jesus, right? So the point of, of Romans 3 through 5, the next section in Romans, is that God gave Jesus so we could all receive him, right? That's kind of where he goes in, in Romans chapter 3, right? So adding a few more verses to, to Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now we look at the next several verses. All right, this is one of the most beautiful passages unpacking the gospel in the entire Bible. It's also one of the most complex because it's filled with, with words and references that may be a little bit foreign. So I'm going to walk through it and unpack it um, and, and hopefully help make it clear as we dig in, right? So all of sin to fall short, we're all starting there, and all are justified. In other words, can be justified by His grace as a gift. Well, that word justified is one of the most important words in this passage. What does it mean to be justified? Well, you know what it means. You ever been in a fight where you were trying to like argue your case? You ever felt like somebody was, was accusing you of something that was like maybe only two-fifths true? right? Well, yeah, that's true, and that's true, but that's not, and that's not, and that's not. So what do you do? You argue with them. You try to persuade them. What you're trying to do is justify yourself. You're trying to show them that you're right. I'm not what you say I am. I'm right. I didn't do what you say I did. I'm right. Or the bigger biblical word, I am righteous. I'm blameless, right, in this. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are not right. We are not righteous, but we can be justified. We can be declared right. We can have the gift of righteousness given to us. And how is that justification declared over us? By His grace as a gift. Grace is the unmerited love and favor of God, where God simply gives us what we don't deserve because He loves and because it's a gift, it has to be received, uh, because it's grace, it has to be received as a gift. Right? Because if you have to earn it, it's not a gift anymore. If you, have to, if, you have to, if you have to fix yourself to get it, it's not a gift. If you have to earn it to get it, it's not a gift. If you have to work hard to maintain it, it's not a gift. 
A gift is absolutely free. A gift is something that you can't earn and you can't deserve. So God is offering us the gift of being declared right. The gift of being declared righteous by the sovereign God of the universe. Now here's the thing, it's, it's a gift, so it's free to us. But that doesn't mean it's free. In order for this gift to be made available to us, there is a price. The beauty of this, though, is that it's not a price we pay, it's a price that was paid for us, right? Look at the next phrase. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In, in the biblical times, um, in the slave market, people could be redeemed. Now, when you think about biblical slavery, it's a little bit different than, than what we think of when we think of American slavery. Biblical slavery, most of the time people were in slavery because they had fallen in debt and they couldn't repay it. And so a certain amount of time was basically extracted from them as payment of their debt. And so they could serve for an amount of time and then they would be set free um, because they had paid their debt. The slave owner didn't own them and all of their human rights like American slavery. American slavery was, was an abhorrent and um, the worst expression uh, of slavery that, that, that could exist. In this period of time, you could be redeemed, right? And, and that's where that language comes from, this idea that there was a, a redemption price. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. We were, we were in, a, 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 in a sense, a bondage that we couldn't break out of unless someone came and paid the debt. Jesus came and paid that debt for us, right? The redemption, the purchase price, was in Christ Jesus. So this gift of grace, which is the declaration of being right, is made available to us freely because He paid the price in order for us to get it. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Whom God put forward. Uh, that's a, kind of a weird phraseology, but, but think about it like this, man. In all of human history, God's always active. God's never not doing something. But most of the time, you just can't see his hand. Most of the time, you don't know what he's up to or what he's doing because he's kind of behind the scenes. And we know that, that, that he's in control and that he is eventually going to turn this into a, a story of redemption and restoration. That there is a future of hope for mankind, not because of our political system, not because of our ability to solve our own problems, but because we have a God who is going to tell a greater story than the one we would tell for ourselves. But there are points over the course of this drama where God pushes his hand to the forefront and makes sure that whatever he's doing is in in center stage, where where it's right there in the spotlight. And the the language here is this idea that during this period of time, God is pushing Christ on the cross to center stage so that all the lights come down and all the focus is on Jesus being crucified. Him paying this redemption price. God put Him forward as a propitiation by His blood. The word propitiation is a word that means satisfaction. So that leads us to a question, who's being satisfied? How does the price that Jesus is paying satisfy someone? Well, we have to remember that our sin debt was primarily owed to God. We were created by God as His image bearers to manifest His glory. We committed cosmic treason by rejecting the rule and sovereignty of God 
by rejecting the glory of God for our own glory, the will of God for our own will, keeping God as the center to revolving around ourselves, we said we will be like God. We don't need God. And in committing cosmic treason, we owed a great debt to God. The debt of our sin was death. God said that in the early chapters of the Bible. In the day you sin, you shall die. Death was the payment required. So God puts Jesus forward as a clear satisfaction of the debt that we owed through the payment of his blood. And it is to be received by faith. So how do we get the benefit of this payment? We believe. We receive the gift by faith. We stop trying to earn our own way, to pay our own debt, to to save ourselves, to fix ourselves. We simply recognize our helplessness and rest in his ability to save. It was to be received by faith. Then he goes on to say this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over the former sins. (laughs) And then the end. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, let me just ask you a question. Why couldn't God just forgive sins? I mean, he's God. Why this whole Jesus dying on the cross thing? In fact, some people get really offended at that. They're like, you know, I don't, that sounds like divine child abuse. Why would God have to kill his own son? What is, what is up with this vengeful, mean God that he would need a payment of blood? Well, here's the thing, you guys. To be just, you have to bring judgment. And if you've ever suffered in judgment, suffered injustice, you know that. Think about this. What if we had a judge over here at the courthouse who occasionally would just look at somebody and go, you know what? I like your face. And because I like your face, I give you a pardon. Oh, you're a murderer. That's okay. Because I like your face. Right? I like you. I believe in you. I'm going to give you a fresh start. In fact, what if that judge did that with every single person who came in front of him? I like you. I like your face. I believe in you. I think you can have a fresh start. When that judge came up for re-election, would you vote for him? I seriously doubt it. Because we know that the person who holds the hand of the weight of justice needs to bring judgment. There are times when judgment needs to be enacted for justice to be satisfied. God had to enact judgment or he would have been an unjust judge. It would have violated the very character of the righteousness of God. But in order to be both just and the justifier, he punished his son in our place. In other words, he absorbed the offense, even though he was the one who was offended. He absorbed the pain of our rejection and our lying about Him and our hatred of Him and our rebellion against Him. He absorbed it in love so He could then extend to us the grace of a new beginning, of forgiveness and redemption and a future and a hope. All right, so I want you to see Romans 1 through 3. All y'all need Jesus. Romans, Romans 3 through 5 All y'all can be saved. 
God loved you enough that, that he acted to both justify you and protect his own righteous nature. He absorbed your pain. He took your place. He provided a substitute in judgment so you could be forgiven. Now, Romans 6 through 8, take it one step further, all right? So you needed a Savior. Now you have a Savior. Romans 6 through 8, now that you've believed in Jesus, you need to change. You were saved by grace from the penalty of your sin. But you weren't just saved from the penalty of your sin. You were saved so that you could be delivered from the power of your sin. Here's the thing, you guys. I think every single one of us have wrestled with this. Who hasn't at some point thought, you know what, I'm a follower of Jesus. It's all grace. Jesus died for my sins. Everything I've already done, everything I am doing, everything I will do. So what's it matter? It's just a little sin. What's it matter? If I'm already forgiven, why don't I just do what I want to do? If I have grace, why don't I just indulge? I'm already forgiven. It's not a big deal. Jesus already paid the price. If it's all grace, why not sin? Romans 6 through 8 makes a very clear argument that where grace abounds, sin will die. If you're truly experiencing grace, you will be changed. And those that use grace as an excuse to abound in sin haven't really tasted of grace. Jesus died not just to deliver us from the penalty of our sin, but so that we could be delivered from the power of our sin. He didn't just die to change your future. He died to change you. So, this idea that he died to remove the consequences of our behavior, absolutely true. But he also died that we might be delivered from the influence of those sinful choices. So Romans 6, 22 and 23 says this, but now you've been set free from sin. Now pay attention to that language, set free. Now it's not forgiven or delivered, now it's set free. So he's no longer talking about the penalty, he's talking about the power. You've been set free. You used to be, in a sense, enslaved to sin. So let me explain that terminology. How are we enslaved to sin? Your desires control your behavior. Your desires control your behavior. I want this. My desires grow in strength for it, so therefore I behave in such a way that I get it. So whatever controls your desires controls you. Whatever it is that, that you've set up as what you need and what you want, it ultimately will, will enslave you. So it feels like freedom when you get to chase it, but the reality is it's just the freedom to pursue what you're already enslaved to pursue. So when it talks about us being enslaved to sin, what it means is, is that our desires are, are enslaved, are, are latched onto things that don't give us what they promise. So we're enslaved to, to chase things that aren't God, looking for them to be God for us. And it leads us into, um, as it says, all kinds of things, right? But now you have been set free from sin and instead have become slaves of God. So what he's saying is, is I've changed the, the center of your desires. When you become a believer in Jesus, you're no longer enslaved to things that aren't God. 
to find your deepest satisfaction. Your desires are now anchored on the glory of God, the things that actually give satisfaction. So this idea of being a slave of God is not this, this uh, servile, uh, like I better just grovel in the presence of God. It's, it's talking more about how our desires are enslaved to the object of that desire, and God has changed it, right? We're no longer looking for things outside of God. We, we have God Himself. And the fruit, he goes on to say, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and an insane eternal life. So this wedding of desire and being unified or enslaved to the object of that desire, God's glory, produces a fruit in your life. And that fruit leads to sanctification. All right, sanctification, another big religious word. The root of it means to be set apart. To, to be set apart. To be set apart from what you were to what you will be. To be set apart from what you were defined as to what you are now defined to be. Sanctification is, is this idea of being progressively set apart to something else. And that end, the end of that sanctification process is eternal life. And then he goes on to say, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So eternal life is a long time, right? That's what makes it eternal. It just lasts a really, really long time. What if you don't like your eternal life? Is that still eternal life? What if it's miserable? What if it's boring? What if it's stupid? Is that still eternal life? No. See, here's the thing. When Scripture talks about eternal life, it's not talking primarily about a length of time. It's talking about a quality of life. What makes it eternal life is that it is the experience of life in all of its fullness. It never goes out. It never fades. It never dies. It is this ongoing experience of having your desires fully satisfied in what gives genuine fulfillment, the glory and presence of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, this quality of life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death, so when we allow our desires to go toward things that aren't God, to go toward things that God hasn't given, the result is death. Death is separation. Physical death is separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is separation of a human from his creator. Relational death is, is separation between two people who used to be close, but now there's a separation, right? So, so when you chase sin, you compound separation, death in your life. So if, if you sin against a friend, to protect, you know, your reputation, or maybe there's an area of shame you're afraid is going to be exposed, so you lie to them, and they find out about that lie. What does it do to the trust in that relationship? It creates a separation. See, you're compounding death, right? When, when you, when you um, compound that shame, internalize that shame, you are, in a sense, sinning against the image of God within you. You're sinning against the work of Christ in you. You compound separation between your t- true self and your false self, which creates all kinds of shame and internal conflict. When you sin against God, it creates relational separation, so you no longer sense the nearness of God. When we pursue the things that aren't God and ask them to do for us what only God can do and be for us what only God can be, we compound the effects of death in our life. We experience unhealthy brokenness and separation in the key and vital relationships that give us life. 
But the free gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. This union, this growing union of life with God, life with yourself, life with others. When you look at it like that, which one do you want? I want life. I want my desires to be latched on to the things that genuinely satisfy, that actually bring me fullness and satisfaction and joy and purpose. And I want an increasing experience of that. And I want that forever. That's the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. See, what Paul is arguing is, look, man, this is a gift that God has put in front of you. He has delivered you not just from the penalty. He's delivered you from the power. Not so you can beat yourself up. Not so you can try to religiously improve yourself. Not so that, but so that you can experience the growing presence of eternal life right now. Life in all of its fullness so that you can be progressively experiencing more and more of it. All right, so I want to make a clear distinction at this point because it's important to where we're going, and it's this. Justification and sanctification are complementary ideas, but we need to be really clear about what they are. Justification is the declaration that I am right, that I am freed from the penalty of my sin. When I believe in Jesus, I am declared right by the sovereign God of the universe. The gavel comes down, and it is a, it is a once-for-all declaration. When I believe in Jesus, my sin is paid for. Everything I've done, everything I'm doing, everything I will do, that is absolutely true. It's all grace. Jesus paid the price. He was the redemption price. And because of that, I can be declared right simply by resting in what He's done. He's that good of a Savior. Right? He paid that great of a price. Right? So justification is the declaration that, that I am righteous by the sovereign God of the universe. When he looks at me, he sees Jesus because I'm covered in Jesus. When I believe in Jesus, all of my sin, all of my shame was left on the cross, and I am covered with the resurrection life of Christ. Justification, some people would define it just as if I never sinned. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my history. He doesn't see my past. He sees my glorious future because I am covered in Christ. That is my position before God. Sanctification, on the other hand, is the ongoing progressive work of God in my life to free me from the power of sin. So justification declares me right. Sanctification helps me experience the rightness that I've been given. Sanctification is the process by which I am made to be more and more like Jesus, the one who is my righteousness the one who rose again so I could be forgiven. I've made more and more like him. I am less and less like I used to be and more and more like who I'm created to be. Now, here's the thing, you guys. Sanctification is progressive, which means that, that you grow into it, which means that it's going to be messy. <laughs> and it's important that we understand that, that when it gets messy, it's not going wrong. Justification leads to sanctification. See, the problem a lot of us have is we approach our justification through our sanctification. So in other words, when we're doing well, we feel more secure. When we feel like we have our act together, we feel like God loves us more. When, when we got our ducks in a row and we're going to church and we're walking in victory over that, that, that besetting sin or whatever it is, then we feel like, oh yeah, of course, of course I'm a believer. Of course God loves me because I got my act together. And the problem is when we don't, 
Then we feel like, well, God doesn't love me. God isn't for me. How could God love me? I can't even love myself right now. I'm such a failure. I, I fall short so often. I was supposed to have this all together, but I don't have it together. I keep doing the same thing that I hate to do. God must hate me too. Scott Sauls um, had a great tweet this week where he was talking about a passage where Jesus was brought, uh, a woman was caught in sin and brought to Jesus, and Jesus looked at her and said, I forgive you, go and sin no more. I forgive you, go and sin no more. And then he said, the order makes all the difference. I forgive you, go and sin no more. Justification leading to sanctification. He doesn't say, go and sin no more and then I'll love you. As if his justification was dependent on our performance. I forgive you, now go and sin no more. You guys, when people become a believer, I've seen this happen over and over, people become believers and They're so, like, excited. I love new believers because it's all fresh to them. They're so excited. They're so grateful, right? Not like some of us who just get old and crusty in the faith, right? Oh, yeah, Jesus died for me. (gasps) You know, new believers are like, yeah! Grace, man! God loves me! Right? What often happens with that is they get this like surge of like, I love Jesus so much, I'm going to stop sinning. And, and they start changing things, right? They, I'm not going to get drunk every weekend. I'm going to stop doing that other thing that's so bad. Nothing, I'm not doing that anymore. And, and so they start, and pretty soon they're like, I'm like almost Jesus. I stopped sinning like a week ago, and I think the chariots of heaven are about to come and pick me up. Right? But then they sin again. And, 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 and the excitement starts to wear down. And some of the struggles they thought they had defeated came back. And, and some of the desires that they thought were gone start resurging in their heart and they find themselves in the same rut, doing the same thing, fighting the same sin, and they feel like failures and they're beat up. Did they become less holy, right? Sometimes we talk about the Christian life like that, like, yeah, man, I'm on a mountaintop experience. I'm so holy. And then a week later, yeah, I'm backsliding right now, right? Like, I just hit a mud patch and slid right down the face of the mountain. I'm down here. Like, like the Christian life for this giant game of shoots and ladders. You know what I'm saying? Like, here I am, marching on up the holiness ladder. I'm doing good. I stopped doing that. I stopped doing that. I'm going to church. I'm, I'm way up here. And oops, there's a shoe. Down at the bottom again, I'm just covered with shame. I used to be holy, but I'm not holy anymore. I don't even know if God loves me anymore. All right. The Christian life isn't a game of shoots and ladders. All right, put it this way. You're worse off than you think you are. You're a bigger sinner than you know you are. A lot of times when you think you're backsliding, you're just getting a little bit more clarity in what God already knew. The darkness is darker than you know. Your heart is more broken than you imagine. The problem is worse than you imagine. 
Sanctification, a lot of times, is incredibly messy where you feel like you've just lost 10 steps, but the reality is you've just taken two forward. Because instead of being filled with pride in your performance and self-satisfaction and how much God must love you because you're such a good person, you're now more aware of how much you need Him. You're now more aware of your dependence on Him. You're now more desperate for the grace of God to actually come in and change you. You might actually be more holy even though you are sinning more. Or at least you think you are. You guys, the bad news is worse than you think it is, but when you get to that place, when you realize the news is worse than you thought it was, that's when you realize that the good news is better than you thought it was. That your sin is worse than you thought it was and your Savior is greater than you thought He was. That, that, that you're more broken than you knew you were, but God loves you more profoundly and freely than you thought He did. As you discover how deep the problem goes, you also discover how great your Savior is. That's why the therefore is there. Let's go back to Romans 12. Understanding that God acted to justify you and then take you on this journey of sanctification, Paul then says, I appeal to you therefore, Brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Because you've been justified by grace, and because that gift of justification is also the gift of sanctification, you will change. God will reorient your desires. God will free you from your slavery to sin. Because of that, you need to climb up on the altar and become a living sacrifice. Now, this imagery is really powerful because it reminds us of Jesus, right? Jesus allowed them to put the nails in his hands. Jesus allowed them to put the nails in his feet. Jesus allowed them to kill him. Jesus was not their victim. He was God's servant. He willingly went to the cross and allowed that to occur so that he could become our substitute in judgment, so that He could become our propitiation, satisfying God's wrath in regard to our sin. He willingly allowed this to happen. He was a willing sacrifice. We are now being called to follow that example. Jesus was put to death for our sin to set us free. We are now being called to put our sin to death to walk in that freedom. Jesus died for our justification, and we're now being called to live out our sanctification. And we do that by being living sacrifices. You know what that means? It means sometimes following Jesus feels like dying. Sometimes following Jesus hurts. Because that part of you that was enslaved to sin still wants to follow its old master. That part of you that was enslaved to sin and was looking for satisfaction outside of God is still wanting to be satisfied outside of God. It's having a hard time walking away from its old master. That part of you that wanted to find life outside of God is still active. It wants to compete with God for His glory and replace God for control. 
So you got to climb up on that altar and present your body to God. Here I am. I'm a living sacrifice. You know what the problem is with a living sacrifice, though? It keeps squirming off the altar. Don't we? Like when it hurts and when it gets uncomfortable, we're like, yeah, I think I'm done with this. I think I'm off the altar, right? That's the problem. He's like, you need to be a, a living sacrifice. You need to willingly stay on the altar where, where God is going to do surgery on you to, to cut out the cancer that's killing you, to, to reorient your desires, to free you. You need to stay on the altar. But that's really, really hard. It's hard when you find your security in unhealthy relationships. And you're feeling really insecure and, and your phone's lighting up with those old friends that you know are unhealthy. It's really hard when you find pleasure and sinful activities and you're feeling overwhelmed and tired and maybe sad and, and, and there's only like this comfort sitting right in front of you with this sinful You're just like, I just, I just want to do this really hard when you find your importance in the echo of the wrong voices and those people keep calling you back and want to sing your praise. It's really hard when you find your approval in the wrong friends and you're desperately insecure and in need of an approving voice. You guys, it's hard to stay on the altar. It's hard. This is where we get in trouble as Christians. It's also where we get in trouble as a church. Churches, a lot of times, when they uh, are like, man, this church is messy. People are like sinning all over the place. They keep crawling off the altar. A lot of times, the church's solution is, is to put up rules and call people to obey them, right? Like, like Scripture says, we have the freedom to drink alcohol, right? Psalm 114, God, God gives wine to make the heart merry. It's biblical. But we don't like that because when you give people the freedom to drink alcohol, some people are going to drink too much. And their heart's going to get a little too merry. A little too often. Right? And then people start freaking out like, hey, wait a minute, we got people getting drunk. We've got to put up rules. No alcohol. Right? So I'm going to put up a rule and I'm going to call on you to exercise self-control because I need you to change. And the path to change is a rule combined with will. Self-effort. So we're going to put up rules, right? You're watching things you shouldn't be watching, people. You're finding entertainment and shows you shouldn't be watching. So, so you shouldn't be watching. And I start listing, like, you shouldn't watch this show, and you shouldn't watch this show, and oh, this show, this one's okay. But don't watch this one. I, I want to start guiding your entertainment choices. I want to See, that's, the problems with freedoms is that people are free. And they make choices that make other people uncomfortable. And sometimes they make the wrong choices with their freedom. And the church leaders all start freaking out like, we better make some rules. We better start giving some commands. We better start preaching on obedience. Because people need to change. Guys, listen to me. That's not how people stay on the altar. Because religious people aren't on the altar either. The best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. I don't know if you figured that out yet. 
Some people avoid Jesus by avoiding sin. If I just avoid sin, I don't need Jesus, and he doesn't become, his intrusive love doesn't have to break into my life. I'm moral. I'm good. I don't need his love, or, or maybe I'm so good I, I can just talk about it without actually experiencing it. People avoid Jesus all the time by just improving their moral behavior. That's not being on the altar. All right, listen. There's only one way we will ever stay on the altar. And that's right at the beginning of the verse where Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by what? By the mercies of God. I appeal to you. He doesn't appeal to our shame. He doesn't appeal to our guilt. You can do better. You should do better. That's guilt and shame. He doesn't appeal to our fear and pride. Well, you don't want to be like those people. You don't want, you don't want to be like those people. And, and those people, some of those people aren't even going to go to heaven. You, don't, you definitely want to be like those people. Pride, fear. Well, that's not, that's not who you can be and should be. You should be your better self. Pride. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Listen, the problem with change is we want to treat it as if it were a problem with our will. It just needs a little guidance. It just needs a few rules. It just needs a few boundaries. And then we can fix this thing. It's not a problem with our will. It's a problem with our heart. And because it's a problem of our heart, the issue isn't that we're choosing sin The issue is that we desire something other than God to fulfill us. We're trying to find life outside of God. That's not a willpower problem. That's a heart problem. It's a desire problem. See, the heart of the problem is where we experience love. And this is why Paul's language is so powerful. See, what he's saying is stop focusing on yourself. You want to change? Stop trying to fix yourself. You want to change? Stop focusing on where you measure up and where you fall short. Fill your eyes with the mercy of God. Fill your eyes with how much God loves you. Fill your eyes with with this beautiful image of Christ put forward into the spotlight so we can see him bearing the consequences of our sin, our shame, our guilt, because he loves us so much. He wants to cover us with his dignity and his righteousness and his love. When you see and experience how much God loves you, you know what it does? It wakes up in your heart a returning love for God. That reorients the desires of your heart. That's the pathway to change. The only way we ever truly change is by responding to the love of God. Not by trying to fix ourselves and impress God. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. For us to be a grace-centered church means that we are a church that rejects all the self-improvement projects. We reject all of the inappropriate motivational tools that we try to to manipulate people with and confine people with. It means we're going to be messy. It means at times there's going to be like like difficulties. It means that, 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 that people are going to be two steps forward and four steps back and three steps sideways. It means that we're all going to be trying to figure this thing out together. Because the central problem of the human condition 
is that we don't know how to be loved. The central problem of the human condition isn't that we do wrong things. It's that we don't know how to be loved, and it's in being loved that we learn to love. It's in being loved that we learn to have our desires reoriented to what is truly fulfilling and glorious. The measure of Christian maturity is not sinning less, but loving God more. And we come to love God more by responding to His initiating love. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God. When you know it's love, when you know it's mercy, when you know it's, it's your loving Father, man, you're going to stay on the altar. You're going to work your way through difficult change. You're going to let Him do the heart surgery because you trust Him and you love Him. All right, let me pray for us. We're going to a time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. We'll let somebody introduce that. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God. That you've done the work to redeem us and restore us. That you paid the price we couldn't pay. That you absorbed our offense, even though you were the offended. You paid the price, even though it was you that we sinned against. You humbled yourself and took the form of a servant, being obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we could be forgiven. Lord, I pray that you will break our hearts of our pride, that you will open the eyes of our amazement, that you will not let us sit here self-satisfied and apathetic toward that kind of love that you wouldn't allow us to be content with moral behavior and self-improvement. We would, we would crave a deeper, more profound experience of your love. That you might be honored and we might be changed. That we might know the beauty and the freedom and the power and the joy of true holiness. You guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.